jingle bells. Jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one horse open sleigh. Hello and welcome once again to this. Festive episode of What's Out There, the paranormal podcast from the Out There Paranormal Group. And telling tales on this episode, we have myself, Nigel. And myself, Juliet. Hello. Hello. It's nearly Christmas. I know. It's so exciting. Oh my God. I wonder if Santa will turn up at my house. I think he will. Do you reckon? Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Have you been a good girl this year? Yes. Uh, I had to think you about you that. had to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a bit of a pause. Mm. I'm not entirely certain. Yes, I have. Now, let I me have. go back. Because no. I've got a list of all the things you've done throughout oh, the year. Oh, God. I've been helping Santa. <laughs> Oh, no. Mm. That's it then, isn't it? I've been the elf on your shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? I've been putting off the bloody elf on the bloody shelf. I was going to say, I can't see them anywhere. Right? I've got two of the bastards. I know. Yes, I know, right? And I haven't put them out yet. No? I've said they've been delayed. (laughs) (laughs) On their way from the North Pole. (laughs) Yeah, right? What I'm going to do, right, is I'm going to stick them in the freezer in a Tupperware, right, bucket, light pot full of water I'm gonna let them freeze okay and then I'm gonna shove them right on the fireplace with obviously with the fire off and I'm gonna leave them frozen block of ice <laughs> and just say they got a bit stuck and got a bit frozen and I'm really sorry but they couldn't make it until Christmas Eve and that gets me out of all the elf on the shelf panics about forgetting to move the bloody things. I've got to think about all the dramatic things that you have to do with them. Oh, God, all the ropes and the this and the that and the... I remember coming around here and you were setting up the grand finale one Christmas Eve and it was so elaborate. I'm like, oh, my God. That that thing, I think I said on a previous podcast when you but that elf on the shelf is a pain in the ass for every single parent. It certainly is. And yeah. I, idiot that I am, bought two. <laughs> One for each boy. Oh, so we have Dobby and we have Ulf. Right? <laughs> and Dobby and Ulf are delayed somewhere in the North Pole. Sitting <laughs> in a block of ice in a Tupperware box. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? So that that is my ultimate plan for Dobby and Alf because it just gets me out of all the crap and I can focus on other things for Christmas. I think that's a very sound like idea. Like mulled wine and nice exactly. things. Exactly, all the things that you want at Christmas. <laughs> you know. Which, of course, then leads us on to yeah. what actually happens at Christmas. I know. Because, You're upset, though, aren't you? you well, set? yeah, just about, yeah. I think, yeah. well, do you know, it's like, it's like I've got, oh, I've done so many things, don't I, Jules? Not. Well, Lee, you didn't get. I noticed there's no elf on the shelf at your house. Certainly isn't. No, you're not s- stupid as I am. And um, I don't actually buy an awful lot of presents. Yeah, you do. Well, I have a select few that I buy for, but yeah. I don't have to buy for all my family. Does Annie still get a Santa sack? Anna still gets her presents. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's she always nice. gets her presents. But Maria does most of the Christmas shopping. Uh, I can't be held responsible for Christmas shopping. I've got all my wrapping done this year, pretty much. And- pretty much there which is very unusual for me i've 
Near enough done. Usually with me, it's fly by the seat of my pants. Yeah, I've got one couple of items that I've got to finish off and then I'm done. Yay! Which is a rarity for me as well, because I'm normally like two or three days before Christmas thinking, <laughs> shit, I've not done yeah, anything yet. That's right. I've done the shopping, but I've just not wrapped anything up. So, <laughs> uh, But I have actually managed to get it done this year. And I, oh, I'm such a tart when it comes to wrapping things up as well. I know. Most people sort of look about and think, oh, I'll just put that paper. Not me. Oh, no, it has to have certain paper. It's your creative flair. It is, out, I know. It? My artistic temperament. That's it. That's it can't it. just be like wrapped up in wrapping paper. Yeah, but your presents are always so lovely. The wrapping paper's got to match and it's got to have ribbons around I it and know. bows. And then... I know, but your gifts are so lovely because you always put so much thought into your presents as well. They're lovely. It's, the good thing is, the advantage I have is that I don't have to buy very many. So I can then yeah. think about what I'm doing with them. So, yeah. Bless you. And it's nice to buy presents for people that appreciate the weird things you like know them. it really is but it's, it's not all about the buying is it? it's just about the giving it isn't and it is a lot of it is about the thought as well and it's just watching people's faces you know watching them open up gifts like that you've bought and chosen and yeah. watching how much joy it brings them as well it's just heartwarming there that's the one thing i love about christmas see we love christmas we do and i'm sure all of you out there in podcast land love christmas as much as we do yeah but what? I'm going to put my Grinch hat on now. Hey up. Here we go. Okay. You know what I'm like. I can be go. bad on bugs sometimes, but no. <laughs> we're going to share some Christmas tales with you because we decided rather than sort of go down the route we have been doing and sort of talking about various sort of different things. Mm. And we've actually got some local ghost stories that all take place in or around Christmas that yeah. we thought we'd share with you. And there are a few cautionary tales about Christmas in amongst this lot. Because, as you may well know, we all enjoy a drink or two at Christmas, don't we, Juliet? <clears throat> yes, maybe and, we do. And um, overindulgence <laughs> is the order of the day. Yes, don't be nice. Indeed. <laughs> and as the alcohol flows, our inhibitions go... Don't they, Juliet? Um. And oh, Juliet, yes. we can make some four very poor decisions, can't we, too? It has been known on occasion. So, <laughs> our first two cautionary tales warn about the dangers of partaking in too many festive beverages, Juliet. Because <laughs> drunken bravado <clears throat> can lead to something really rather Horrible. Well, we don't want to go there, do we, we don't. Nige? I picked on you a bit there, didn't I? Huh. <laughs> That's okay. I'll get my revenge. You always do. You know it. Anyway, our first tale takes us to a place called Breckles Hall. Hang on. Before we go there. Okay. It's time to sit down by a roaring fire. Get your mulled <clears throat> wine out. Of course. Settle down. Relax. And get ready for our Christmas tales. Imagine the scene, if you will. Rural Norfolk in the 1830s. It's Christmas Eve. Crisp snow glistened in the steely light of a sharp-edged moon. A perfect poacher's moon, in fact. In the hedges and trees of the Breckles Hall estate, fat partridges, bred by the local gentry as fodder for their guns and their tables, 
are at roost, silent and safe for now. In Hockham, the Red Lion beer house is heaving with customers. John Adcott, the publican, is pulling pints and pouring out cups of hot grog. Over by the fire, a conspiratorial and somewhat drunken group of individuals, most of whom are poachers, were deep in their cups. At their head was one Jimmy Mace, a well-known local poacher, drunkard and boaster. As the alcohol flowed, so the conversation got louder, each man bragging about his exploits, with Jim's voice being the loudest of them all. Suddenly, one of the men jumped to his feet. Jimmy and me... He slurred loudly. Jimmy and me is going to have a brace of them fat partridges for Christmas. We'll take our guns and we'll shoot them down on the old gamekeeper. Why? He's too deaf to hear. He'll be asleep in his bed and we'll be away scot-free with a brace of birds apiece. An old chap who had been sitting nearby piped up. Now, you listen to me here, boy. You just remember the coaching four. For one blank-faced moment, Jimmy's pal stared at the old man, trying to focus his eyes upon the fellow and make some sense of the words he'd spoken in his drink-addled brain. All the locals knew the tale about the ghostly coach and four that were said to come galloping down the Breckles Hall Road at midnight when the hall was left unoccupied. So the story goes, this ghostly apparition would come silently speeding along the road and down the drive until it stopped at the door of Breckles Hall. Now when this coach came to a halt, every window in the empty house would suddenly light up brightly. If you dared to look inside, which very few were brave enough to do, it was said you would see a ball in full swing, the dancers swirling around the floor, though not a single sound could be heard. The coach would stop, the footman would climb down, open the coach door and out would step a beautiful lady. However, you must avoid her gaze for she would look a man in the eyes and her cold stare would make him drop dead where he stood. The drunken poacher, like everyone else in the bar that night, knew this story very well, but the drink had made him proud and fearless. Tis now, he said, scorning the old chap's words. The hall's empty tonight, mused the old man quietly. Jimmy's pal wasn't to be put off. With a sarcastic bow, he pushed his way out of the pub, with Jimmy close behind. Turning back towards the crowded bar, he announced, We shall shoot all them ghosties and all. And laughing drunkenly, <laughs> they left. So Jimmy and his mate set off full of Dutch courage. They called at Jimmy's cottage and picked up a gun and a bag, and off they went into the cold night, searching the hedges for game. As drunk as they were, many of their shots found a mark or two, and before long, their bag was bulging 
with many a fat bird. Jimmy remembered the empty hall. Let us two go and rouse them boggarts, he said, and his pal readily agreed. So off they went towards Breckles Hall. When they reached the mansion, the place was as quiet as a grave and completely dark. The hall towered over them, deep shadows where the windows were, like jet black eyes, watching the drunken pair as they staggered around. Jimmy stumbled up to the window pane and tried to peer into the inner darkness. Sounding almost disappointed, he declared, Don't see no bogarts in there. His friend suggested, Try the door, boy. So Jimmy felt his way along the wall until he found the front door, a huge wooden affair, and he rattled it against its locks. No sooner had he done so, and then the village clock chimed out twelve times as clear as crystal, ringing on the freezing air of the still night. As the last stroke sounded, round the corner of the drive swept a coach and four. Its horses stepped high, but their pounding hooves struck no noise from the ground. The lamps on the coach shone brightly, lighting up the scene. The two men could see the footman and the driver in front, sat stiff and still as Taylor's dummies, their unblinking eyes, glancing neither right nor left, staring straight ahead into the inky darkness. As the coach drew nearer, every window in the house lit up, ablaze with light, and the great front door, which only a moment before Jimmy had shaken hard against its locks, swung wide open. Rooted to the spot with fear and astonishment, the two men watched as the coach came closer and drew up by the door, no more than a couple of feet from where they watched. Down the footman climbed, just as everybody said they did, opened the carriage door, unfolded the steps and then stood back, one to either side. A second's dreadful pause. And then from the coach, gracefully as only a woman can, came the most dazzlingly beautiful lady the poor stricken poachers had ever seen in their simple lives. Her jewels winked from neck and arms and hands, her dress glowing brightly billowed about her. Down the carriage step she came. Upon reaching the ground, she slowly raised her head and looked straight into the transfixed eyes of Jimmy Mace. As she did so, time seemed to stand still. A sense of pure dread hovering in the air. Then, 
Slowly, Jimmy opened his mouth and let out a long, stark, piercing howl that sliced to the nerves of the silent winter night. That anguished cry brought Jimmy's power to his senses. Sobering very quickly, he set off, running madly towards the village, as if all the devils in hell were scampering at his heels. When he reached the houses of the village, he ran from one to the next, calling frantically for help. Help! Hearing his terrible tale, however, not a single person would return with him back to the hall. Next morning, however, the parson and some of the villagers did go there. Not a sign of the coach could they find, not a hoof print in the soft snow, not a wheel track anywhere, but lying in front of the main locked door of the magnificent old house was Jimmy Macy's body, frozen dead on the hard ground, and with such a look of utter dread etched upon his face that few men present could bear the sight. The mysterious and beautiful ghostly lady of Breckles Hall had gained yet another victim. Well, as M.R. James would say, a warning to the curious. This goes to show that poking your nose in where you shouldn't can often lead to these sort of things. Mm. Indeed. I don't think I'd go drunkenly wandering about up to the Great Hall to I see what I could yeah, see. I don't think that's a very good plan, is no, it? Not at all. Not no. if you want to live. Exactly. So, kind of hoping that our first towers maybe chilled your bones a little bit. So, get yourself closer to the fire. Pour yourselves another drink. Because... We've got another tale to tell. Where are we going this time, Jules? We're heading to a place called Worsted, near North Walsham in Norfolk. Where we have another tale about yet another spooky lady. It's Christmas Eve, 1830, and once again we find ourselves ensconced in the warm comforts of a public house. The King's Head in Worcester to be precise. It's the usual rowdy evening you see the King's Head had a local reputation of being a somewhat lively establishment frequented by the local weavers. It was the usual custom for the sexton of St Mary's Church, which was not far from the pub, to ring in Christmas Day as the church clock struck midnight and many of the locals would turn out to listen. A few of them were drinking in the King's Head that Christmas Eve and the conversation turned to the subject of a well-known local ghost story. The white lady who was said to appear in the bell tower as the clock struck midnight. Now most of the locals were really afraid of this spirit and the discussion turned to how they would not want to be in the tower to witness the ghost. However, one local weaver who had perhaps drunk a little more than he should, boasted that he was not afraid of no white lady. In fact, he would prove how brave he was 
by going over and ringing the bell himself, announcing that if he saw the white lady, he would give her a kiss. Well, midnight was drawing near, so a few intrepid locals, along with the weaver, left the pub. With a lantern swinging from his hand, the weaver strode out across the road, and as he went, he yelled out to the others to... Listen out for the bell! As the weaver approached St Mary's Church, the darkness of the graveyard dampened his enthusiasm somewhat. He held up the lantern, but its feeble light fails to penetrate the gloom. He walks across the graveyard towards the dark, gaping mouth of the porch. As he enters in, the carefree bravado he felt earlier is all but leached away. He reaches the church door, turns the handle and pushes it open. And with a heightened sense of trepidation, he steps in. He feels a little less fearful once he gets inside and with the dim light of his lantern leading the way, he walks towards the ringing chamber at the base of the church tower. Reaching the chamber, he gropes around in his jacket pocket. He finds his metal hip flask. Unscrewing the cap, he gulps down a large swig of Dutch courage. As he places the flask away, he hears a noise that sounds like footsteps coming from the narrow staircase that leads upwards to the bell chamber. Who's there? He calls out, his voice shaking just a little. No answer. But he's sure that he heard the footsteps again. Against his better judgement, the weaver decides to check the stairs to see what could be making those noises. In the claustrophobic surroundings of the stairwell, the weaver can feel his fear growing. Even with his lantern to keep him company, the darkness still closes in around him, and he has a palpable sense that he is not alone in the blackness. Steadying himself against the wall, he begins to climb the steep stairs. And as he ascends, all he can hear is his own heavy footsteps on the stone staircase. Two thirds up. He stops to catch his breath. His ragged gasps echo around the stairwell. Once again, he reaches into his pocket to pull out his flask of Dutch courage. He takes a final swig. The flask, now empty, placed firmly back, and he readies himself to start out up the stairs again. He takes a single step and suddenly stops. He listens, ears straining. Was that a whisper? I will always be with you. He's sure he's just heard a whisper. Was that a woman's voice? He goes up a few more steps 
Ahead, he can see the top of the stairs and the dark space beyond. The bell chamber at last. Footsteps. Wait, he can hear footsteps. It's not his own, as he is still not moving. The footsteps are coming from the bell chamber, and now he can hear the whisper again, and what sounds like someone crying? I will always be. He hears his voice cry out. Who's there? I can hear you. I'm coming to find you. The bell chamber is deserted. There is not a soul in sight. His heart beating just a little faster now. The weaver holds up his lantern in a desperate attempt to light up the far corners. And as he does so, he can see a strange glowing mist forming in front of him. The hazy shape of something begins to appear. Tendrils of luminous white smoke take the shape of a young woman. The weaver can see her sad face and a wave of melancholy hits him. The white woman moves towards him. The weaver's heart is now beating a furious tattoo against his ribcage and his chest begins to tighten. He tries desperately to catch his breath, gulping in air. The spectre draws nearer to him, her face about a foot away from his, still sad. But now he can see it changing. He is hit once again by a wave, only this time. It's a wave of complete and utter evil. And as the face changes into some unspeakable horror, all he can hear are his screams of sheer panic. Ah! Midnight passes, and outside the king's head, the weaver's friends wait to hear the bell ring. Silence. Nothing but silence. Five minutes past midnight, the group decide that something is not right. Arming themselves with lanterns from the pub, they head into the church. They can't find their friend in the ringing chamber, but one of them notices that the door to the bell chamber stairs stands open. Rushing up the narrow stairs, the group can hear the sound of someone weeping with bouts of insane gibberish punctuating sobs. In the corner of the bell chamber, they found the weaver, crouching wedged tightly, his face a mask of utter fear, eyes rolling madly. As his friends approach, he reaches out one arm, finger pointing ahead in a rasping whisper they hear him say. I've seen her. She was right there. And with that, he lapses into unconsciousness. His friends managed to lower him through the bell chamber trapdoor and they carried him back across the road to the king's head. They never did find out if he kissed the white woman, as he had cheerfully boasted earlier, for he never regained consciousness and died later that day.
think those two are subtle reminders of not to drink too much at Christmas. Well, not only that, not to sort of hang about with your mates and dare each other to do ridiculous things. Why are you looking at me? Well, I don't know. I don't know either. Have you ever done that? Not recently. Had a few beers? Said to your mates? Well, Let's go and put a fairy no. liquid in the fountain outside C&A <laughs> in Norwich. No, that wasn't me. Oh, you didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't know. <laughs> Can you remember that? Oh, nice. That used to be a regular thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm going back in time here, aren't they? C&As. I mean, good grief. C&As. <laughs> Those were the days. Back in the day. <laughs> and Woolworths. Mm. Back in the day. You can tell where I got my outfits from. Yeah. Man at C&A. Oh, I was going to say, I thought Woolworths. No. <laughs> I used I, to get my sweeties from Woolworths. Pick and mix. Oh, I used to love the oh, pick yeah. and mix. Yeah. Oh, yummy. Classic stuff. Mm. Of course, we do all gather at Christmas, that's the thing. We all sort of gather in various locations. Where are you going this Christmas? Are you sort of rocking up around someone's house or...? Me? Yeah. I'm not rocking up anywhere. Aren't you? I'm not just going to turn up at someone's house. Well, no, I mean, are you going with your mum and dad's or...? Yes. (laughs) It'll be fine. No, it'll be lovely. (laughs) It will be lovely. Mm. What about you? Um, we're staying at home, but we've got my mum and dad coming over. Yay! Why are you looking like that? Because, lovely. yes, you know, it all depends on whether my father <laughs> decides he wants to eat anything or not. Oh, you know, families and They can fun. be very awkward. We always have a traditional family row at Christmas. It's what you have to there's, do, isn't there's it? There's always one. Somebody always squabbles for somebody exactly. at Christmas and a family get-together. It's the done thing. And it's usually my dad that falls out with someone. <laughs> yes. Dad's a great at that. Aren't they just? Okay, so like we were saying, there's going to be quite a few of I would imagine beginning gathering at some location for a Christmas party. Yeah, and we've got one location in Norfolk, which just happens to be a perfect spot for a right royal Christmas party. Can you guess where we're going next, Jules? I would say Sandringham House. It is Sandringham House. It's the traditional location for the royal family to spend the festive season. But it seems they don't spend the festive season at Sandringham on their own. Because they have a number of ghosts and spirits who join them there. Do you think the Queen ever saw them? Well... Listen very carefully as we share a few of these tales with you, and you'll be surprised to learn that actually, she may well have done so. In fact, Sandringham House is home to a number of spirits who have made themselves known to both staff and royal family members alike. The activity is said to start every Christmas Eve and continue for several weeks. The housemaids believe that the most frightening spot in the house is the sergeant footman's corridor on the second floor. They only clean that area of Sandringham in pairs or groups. Light switches are turned on and off, footsteps are heard walking down the corridor, and doors are heard opening and closing. Christmas cards have been moved from one wall to another and bedclothes have been found, pulled off the beds and piled on the floor. The library of the house is considered to be one of the most haunted rooms. There have been lots of incidents in this location. There is an old clock in there, and the hands move by themselves. There is a smaller part of the library where a servant once had a kip, only to be woken by books flying from the shelves. 
Back in the mid-1980s, King Charles, Prince Charles formerly, and his valet, Ken Stronach, were looking at some prints in the library. They both suddenly felt very cold and were convinced someone was behind them, but turning around, they found that no one was there. After crying, Oh heck! Charles grabbed the first print and got out as quickly as he could. He was petrified by all accounts. An unnamed member of the royal family revealed to the author Joan Foreman that a female guest was given a bedroom where she witnessed an apparition. The woman had slept badly and awoke at 2am to find the room brightly lit. The door of the bedroom was suddenly opened and in came a young boy carrying a long pole. The boy then proceeded to walk around the room, pausing every few seconds to reach up the wall with the pole to apparently light or extinguish long vanished candles. The female witness was surprisingly unworried by this and watched, fascinated, till the boy suddenly vanished. One of the most famous occurrences was reported in 1996 by footman Sean Crowsdale. He saw the ghost of Tony Jarrod, our former Queen Elizabeth's favourite steward, who had died a year previously in the same cellar where Tony had died. Crowsdale was very frightened to see the image of Tony dressed in his familiar blue apron. He dropped several bottles of wine and ran screaming from the cellar. Jared had died at the age of 60 after dedicated service to the royal family for 38 years. Queen Elizabeth had known him his entire life and according to a royal insider was very fond of him and took comfort from knowing that he was still around. In fact, there was a rumour that Queen Elizabeth had actually seen Tony's ghost herself. Now, one of the strangest sightings at Sandringham was made by a footman in his bedroom. He claimed to have seen something like a large paper sack breathing in and out like a grotesque lung. Not surprisingly, he refused to sleep there after that. It's not known who or what haunts Sandringham House. Queen Alexandra and the two sons, Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, and King George V died there, as did King George VI. They've all been suggested as being responsible for the ghostly activity. So let's leave you with this final story. Members of staff at Sandringham reportedly became scared of one room in the vast house after a number of nerve-wracking experiences in there. The room in question was where the late Queen Elizabeth's father, King George VI, lived before his death in 1952 and was said to be so haunted that staff made it known they did not want to work in there. Things were so bad, a local parson was called in to help. The parson walked from room to room and did indeed feel some sort of restlessness in one of them, the very same room that King George VI had died in. So, the parson held a service there with just the Queen Mother, the late Queen Elizabeth and a lady-in-waiting present. The congregation of three took Holy Communion and special prayers were said to bring tranquillity to the King's soul. Some funny old towels there. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs>
a big lung that goes in and out like a paper bag. I, I mean, if he was taking something, <laughs> surprise me. In his little quarters. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of a little bit of a glimpse of the things that happen, but you wonder what else could have gone on in there. How much sherry has been consumed? No, more no, to the no, point. It's true, very true. <laughs> but my brother used to. Um, armed security duty at Sandrum with the police and he said they're a funny old bunch the royal family oh my yeah. goodness some of them were rather nice and some of them were not very nice at all but really? I'm not going to tell you which ones are which but, probably um, best not no, no just in case <laughs> but of course we have to end our festive fun with a new year story this one is a cautionary warning to those who live wicked lives and expect to remain unpunished we are telling you this tale at a time when resolutions can be made to give you all a chance to change the paths you currently tread and save your mortal souls. Repent before it's too late and you too find yourself cursed to spend eternity. Riding with the devil. This tale takes us back to New Year's Eve 1770 in the grounds of Ranworth Hall. The local hunt is gathering for the biggest hunt of the year. At the head is Colonel Thomas Sidney, a wild, cruel, bitter man. Wine woman and the mad pleasures of the hunt owned his soul, if he could be said to have one. Well, the local residents reckoned he was the devil himself with his flashing eyes, his coal black hair, his sombre clothes, and above all, his mighty mare, Black Jezebel, which he always rode as though the devil were in the saddle. No one ever saw the colonel other than the booted and spurred. He called out the hounds at the prompting of a passing whim. He rough road shod over all and sundry, and heaven help the poor soul who spoiled his sport. Yes, the dear colonel, as you may have gathered, was much hated in the area. A cruel and thoughtless man who put pleasure before any care for his fellow villagers. Sidney was a drunkard whose already evil temper got worse when he was in his cups. A gambler, and perhaps worst of all, an incredibly bad loser. Not that he got much practice at losing, for he was a noted sportsman, and his neighbours were wary of getting on his wrong side by besting him in a contest. The colonel was already in high spirits before the hunt began, boasting wildly of his riding prowess and how successful he was going to be that very day. One of the hunt guests, not knowing the colonel that well, had the temerity to question his riding prowess. Sidney could not let that pass and he challenges this individual to a horse race. So the two men line up and with a blow of the hunting horn. The race begins. At first, they're well matched, galloping side by side. (laughs) 
but it's not long before the hunt guest and his horse began to gain an advantage, and they race ahead. The colonel can see he will be well beaten. He cannot lose face in front of the locals. He pulls out a pistol and proceeds to shoot the other rider's horse from under him. The frightened animal rears and sends its rider flying. You could hear his neck crack as he hit the ground with a solid thump. And for good measure, the colonel gallops over his prone body, his mount kicking the man's head as he lay there on the ground. He returns triumphantly to his hunt guests, and no one was brave enough to question the terrible thing he'd just done. With his neighbours too scared to act against him, Sidney has no compunction about appearing at the hunt ball he is holding that very night. He loved to hold depraved all-night parties at Ramoth Hall, and the shrieks of laughter and drunkenness would echo across the nearby broad. The colonel, dressed in his finery, his brain still more befuddled by a day of continued drinking, begins to roar at the top of his voice, totally without shame, about his race victory earlier in the day. He continues with his boasting and his bragging until suddenly go the doors to the old hall as they fly open. A chilling breeze blows through the hall, biting through to the very souls of those present. At the threshold stands a tall and slender figure, dressed all black, that merges his shape with the night behind him. No features of the face beneath the elegant black hat are visible. Sidney's mouth gapes, for once he is silenced. The figure approaches, a skeletal hand appearing from within the sleeve of its black coat, grabs the colonel around the throat. Its bony fingers dig deep into the flesh. The colonel is lifted off the ground, and the figure retreats through the open doors, leaving behind a cloud of yellow smoke and the dreadful aroma of burning sulphur. The other guests fall back away from the door, choking from the noxious fumes, all terrified by the horror they have just borne witness to. Outside, the dark figure throws the colonel, now yelling and shrieking for both help and mercy across the saddle of a large black horse. With studied ease. The devil, for that, is who the black figure is. Mounts the black steed, and in a second he, the horse, and the terrified captive are racing across Ranworth Broad, steam rising from the water, wherever a hellish hoof touches. Sidney's voice can be heard still, screaming and begging until finally it fades away into the distance, never to be heard again. That was the last time Colonel Sidney was ever seen again. Well, at least not alive. For every year on New Year's Eve, or so it is said, the devil rides across Ramworth Broad on his demonic steed with Colonel Sidney held across his saddle, still struggling and protesting. Thank you.
There you go. That's it. All done. It is. Another Christmas extravaganza. Yeah. In the can. That's it. Sorted. Finished. Job done. So I suppose there's really only one thing for us to do now, Jules. What's that then? Well, we've got to wish everybody... Oh, we're going now. A very Merry Christmas. Yeah. Oh. I think we have to. This is going to be our last podcast, isn't it, for 2023? It certainly is, yeah. Oh, wow. And we'd like to take this opportunity, actually, to thank everybody who supported us through this year because we've had a rough one and um, we've had moments where we've managed to get things done. We've had long moments where we've not been able to get anything done because real life, unfortunately, does get in the way an awful lot. But we're really, really happy that we've managed to end the year with some great new episodes and we've actually got one recorded ready to yes. kick off the new year. Don't say anything. I'm not going to say a Secret. word. Secret. Shh. Shh. Quiet. But it's another classic. It's a good one, isn't it? It is a good one. It's a good one. It's a good one. Yeah. Last me, And night. you're still working on Ghost Airfields, I am indeed, yeah. I was hoping to get an episode out before Christmas, but I think what I'm going to do is we can kick off the, with the new year with... Yeah. Ghost Airfields Adventures, rather than rush it and get it done, I actually want to take the time to make it as good as we possibly can. We try our very hardest to actually sort of make our content as good as we possibly can um, so people get to enjoy it. And with videos, it does take a little bit of work, so I just want to make sure that a I A little do. bit of work? Yeah, <laughs> it's an understatement. Hours and hours yeah, yeah, of work. I know. That is huge amount of work. I know. But yes. it's worth it because I, I'm confident that... People are going to watch these two episodes and be just like sitting there open mouthed and amazing. Some of the the stories that we tell and the things that happened as well. It's really, really quite interesting. So it's fascinating. It is. Let alone yeah. interesting. It's really, blooming fascinating. Really, really, really fascinating. But thank you guys. You know, thank you so, so much for supporting us. You know, and it's lovely. We have our followers and we think the world of you guys. We really do. We and do, yeah. we're so very, very grateful for your support. And we're looking forward to seeing you in 2024 with some exciting stuff. We certainly are. So, there's only one thing for us to do. And that's for us to both to say very Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas! And a Happy New Year. Happy New Year! And so is good night from me. And it's the final good night from me for 2023. I know. It's exciting. It's great. A whole new year ahead. Have a lovely Christmas. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.